I'm going to be thinking with you in these next lectures about the last command Jesus gave to his church. We call it the Great Commission. You'll find it recorded some way in all the Gospels, but Matthew has the most complete account in the 28th chapter of his Gospel. But I want you to see the context in which this command is given. You'll notice in verse 16, Jesus has gone to the mountain where he had told the disciples to gather. And then in verse 17, this is an interesting statement. When the disciples saw Jesus, they worshiped him. Now that, of course, is easy to understand. Jesus appears to them now in the glory of his resurrection body. It's only natural, I would think, in that situation to be moved to worship the risen Lord. But then the text adds, some doubted. Now, how do you explain that? Certainly, they have no question about the resurrection. Jesus appears to them now in the glory of all his resurrection majesty. But I wonder if what they doubt is their ability to move on now that Jesus will soon return to the Father in heaven. He's already told them he's going to leave. And I can imagine they doubt how they'll get along when Jesus is no longer with them. They've come to trust him. They've left everything to follow him. But now he's going to leave. And I imagine there's a great deal of anxiety, even fear. Some doubted. But then, as you'll note in verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them. Isn't that beautiful? He knows our doubts. He knows our anxiety. We don't have to explain our problem to Jesus. He knows about us than we know ourselves. He came and spoke to them. And notice what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the way this last commission of our Lord begins. With the affirmation of Christ himself declaring who he is. In effect, he is here affirming that he is the Lord God Almighty, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is the God of creation. He is the Almighty who has all authority on this earth and that authority reaches to the farthest star. What an affirmation. 
If we would turn that statement of Christ around and make it our own confession, it would become, in fact, the first creed or generally thought to be the first confession of the church over in Romans 10, verse 9. Remember what it says? Jesus Christ is Lord. He has all authority. And that's where we must begin. If there's any question about who Christ is, it's doubtful that we will give much attention to what he says. But if we truly believe that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, then we've got to give attention to what he says. Now, I don't think I need to labor that point here. For those of you that are watching this lecture, I'm sure have every confidence in what Christ says about himself. And you can join the church through the centuries in affirming that he is all that he claimed to be. He is the living God with all authority in heaven and on earth. If I was speaking to an audience in other circumstances that might have some question about this, I think I would labor this point. Because until it is understood that Jesus is the one who commands all authority in heaven and on earth, we really have no reason to proceed. But that being accepted, we must give attention to what he says. Therefore, and when you see therefore in the Bible, learn what it's there for. Therefore, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now I want you to notice the objective of this command is to reach the nations, all nations, he says here. Now in other versions of the Great Commission, that same universal dimension of our task is emphasized. In Mark's account, in the closing verses of his chapter, he puts it very simply, Go and preach the gospel or evangelize every creature. Luke, in the second volume of his gospel, the book of Acts, puts it in terms of witnessing. As he says, Jesus quoting Jesus, When the Spirit comes upon you, You'll be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, you go to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. John, the beloved, phrases in terms of a mission, as he records Jesus saying, as the Father sent me into the world, I send you. Clearly, the objective is to reach the entire earth. There's no differentiation 
in this commission between the home and the foreign field. It's just one vast world that God loves, that He made so that we could know Him and love Him and rejoice in Him forever. Let's always remember our objective. We are commissioned to go to the ends of the earth, to go to the world, to go and make as witnesses to everyone that God loves. And as Matthew says here in his text, we are to make disciples of all nations. But notice, he doesn't ask us to make converts. Now, I think sometimes that has been understood as the objective, and certainly we want to reach everyone with the gospel. We want them to be converted, which means to repent, to turn from sin, and in simple trust to commit yourself to follow Jesus. That turning around called repentance and trusting yourself to Christ by faith is an initial commitment that launches you on a journey. And in that act, too, you become a disciple, which literally means learner or pupil, as in the sense of an apprentice. Now, sometimes, though, we have only made converts, and our churches are generally filled with converts, and we are grateful for that. But that's not specifically what we were told to do. Certainly, Jesus makes it clear you must be converted to enter the kingdom, Matthew 18, verse 3. But often people who turn to Christ in faith receive the grace of God, make that the end of their commitment. They don't continue to learn. They don't grow. They never go forth into the vast dimensions of what He has called us to do. And consequently, the church doesn't really get into the Great Commission. What a tragedy. But if we truly make disciples, ultimately, we will reach the world. This is the key to His plan, I believe, in reaching every person on the earth. For as you learn of Christ, as you grow in grace, as you follow Him, you will also grow in His likeness. You will learn more of His teaching. You will see more of His life. And in that process, you will also get involved in what Jesus is doing. You'll begin to minister. You'll reach out to others. And you will also begin to make disciples just as He has discipled you. And in turn, those whom you have reached, whom you have been able to share the good news, you will help them understand how they can relate to others. And they in turn can do the same. And through the process of multiplication, 
someday the whole world will have opportunity to hear the gospel. That's the plan. And I know of no other real plan that can succeed. So it behooves us then to look carefully at the way Jesus made disciples because His way of doing it becomes the interpretation of His command. Now I think I must confess at the onset I'm very limited in my understanding. I'm going to make mistakes in judgment because of my ignorance, my background, my training. Some of you will have the same problem. But I believe those of us who are watching this can agree Jesus Christ never made a mistake. So wherever we're coming from, whoever we are, we can be confident that in Jesus we have a perfect teacher. He is Himself the way, the truth, and the life. Now, it's good to understand that He is the way, but we recognize we live in a different age. In the 20th century, things are much different than they were when Jesus walked on the earth in His incarnate body. I came here today on an airplane, having driven earlier to the airport in my car. But if Jesus had come here today, how do you expect He would have arrived? I imagine He would have walked or ridden a donkey. But the method of transportation is dependent upon the situation. Methods will continually change as our conditions change. And we've got to recognize that our circumstances are different. And we've got to be alert to the culture so that we can understand where people are coming from and relate to them in a way that they can understand. If we don't adjust our methodology and our program to the way people can relate, then we'll soon be passe. We'll soon be out of touch because they'll go on and not give attention. We've got to find appropriate ways to implement the Great Commission in practical experience. That's a given. And our methodology will change from time to time and place to place as we meet different conditions. But I want us to think about the principles that must undergird the methodology. Principles, if they are valid, will not change. They will be true in every culture, in every situation, in every age. And if we can identify some basic principles in the life of Jesus, then we have some guidelines by which we can direct our own lives and also help us learn the methods and the programs by which they can be implemented. And we're going to begin in this first lecture with the principle of incarnation. That's where we first meet our Lord.
when we are told he renounced his own rights, or as it's sometimes translated, he humbled himself and took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death. Now, that was a self-renunciation of incredible consequences that it will take us the rest of eternity to comprehend. But that's where we begin. When Jesus actually assumed our identity and became one with us, bearing our sorrows, carrying our griefs, and finally accepting in His very body the consequence of our sin and bore it to Calvary. And that commitment that Christ made when He came into the world brought into focus what was eternally true in the heart of God that was visible when He created the earth and made a creature in His image and breathed to us the breath of life. For God loved what He had made, and He wanted a people to be raised up who would learn of Him and never cease to praise Him. That was His commitment. That was made in the beginning, knowing that we would turn to our own way, and bring upon ourselves the judgment of sin. And so it had been determined before the worlds were made that Jesus would be slain. That was his commitment. That was finally brought into our human experience when he came into the world and accepted our identity. The cross was inherent in the Incarnation, and we will see the implications of that more as we progress through this study. But that determination to be one with us is brought in to bold relief in the way He chose to enter our experience when He was born in a manger. If you had come into the world, would that have been your choice? With Jesus, this was no accident. This had been ordained before, the, before it ever happened. It had been prophesied, of course, through the Old Testament. But it had been determined in advance that He would accept a place among us that would clearly authenticate His desire to be one with us. We don't know very much about his early years. Joseph, his earthly father, is, is not even mentioned in the later portions of the gospel, so it's assumed that Joseph must have died while Jesus was still a young man, which left our Lord with the responsibility not only of taking care of his mother, but also his younger brothers and sisters, which meant that he had to put provision on the table by his own work there in the carpenter shop, a trade which he had learned from Joseph when he was growing up. 
You might call Jesus a blue-collar worker. I've always had a lot of affection for carpenters because they remind me of Jesus. But he, from the very onset, makes clear that he wants to be a part of us. And you can be sure, as he was the head of the family after his father died, he learned from experience what it meant to raise children, what it meant to raise the other kids. There were four or five of them that we know of. But having fulfilled all the obligations of the eldest son, at about the age of 30, he left home and immediately went out and began to minister to the heartbreak of a lost world. He was sensitive to the feelings of people where they hurt. He clothed the naked. He fed the hungry. He opened the eyes of the blind. He delivered those who were possessed of demons. And he was continually preaching the word of God and calling people to the kingdom. Yes, Jesus showed the world that he cared in very tangible ways. His servanthood was obvious. And it's not surprising for that reason that multitudes of people were attracted to him. Have you noticed that? The crowds that are mentioned in the Gospels. One time we're told 4,000, another time 5,000 men. If they counted the women and children, I expect there were 20 or 25,000 people on the hillside as Jesus opened the words of life. There was tremendous interest in the ministry of Christ among the common people because they could see He cared. The word had gotten out that here is someone who really wants to help us, who loves us. And yet he also recognized the real problem of the people in the midst of this tremendous social compassion. Over in the ninth chapter of Matthew, we read about one of these typical days as he's been uh, as he's been teaching and preaching and healing all manner of disease, we're told he looked out upon the crowd and he saw the people were scattered and harassed like sheep that were lost without a shepherd. That was the heartbreak of his ministry. Not a lack of interest or even on the part of the people, recognition for his good works. But he saw how superficial they were, how aimless they were, really not knowing where they were going. Have any of you ever raised sheep? I remember years ago on our little farm down in Texas, we had some sheep. It's quite an education in human behavior because... Bible tells us we're like sheep. You know, they can be clean, they can be beautiful, and even become pets. 
They're always getting sick. But when you're around sheep, you soon learn they need someone to care for them. Someone like a shepherd who knows the way. You don't drive sheep. Did you know that? You can drive goats. You can drive cattle. But if you start to drive sheep, they tend to scatter. You see, sheep are not made to be driven. They're made to be led. And when they're not given that kind of care by someone who knows the way, they just take the course of least resistance. They're open to any kind of moderating danger. That was what Jesus saw when he looked at the multitudes. Here was a crowd, and they were interested. And many of them had heard his message, and they had been healed. But they did not really comprehend who Jesus was or why he had come. They were lost. Oh, they had those that were supposed to give them direction. They had the, the scribes. They were the lawyers. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the fundamentalists and the liberals who had been away to the Bible training schools. But the tragedy was these people who were in privileged positions of leadership in the nation didn't love the sheep. The irony was they didn't know the way themselves. They were lost. And so you have the situation of the blind leading the blind. What a tragedy. Jesus called them hirelings. You know what a hireling is? It's a person you pay to do a job. He's in it for what he gets out of it. But when a hireling sees the sheep under attack and his own life is in jeopardy, the hireling will run away. He's not going to put his life in danger to take care of the sheep. So you can see the problem that Jesus confronted when he saw the people. They didn't have competent men and women who loved the sheep and who knew how to lead them. And he told the disciples to recognize the problem and to pray for the solution. You remember what he said? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send forth workers into his harvest. Now recognize we always pray with the Great Commission in mind. This figure of the harvest is used by Jesus to speak of the great multitudes of the world that need to be brought to Christ. And so we pray knowing that God loves the world, that He is gathering out of the world a people like a harvest. But we don't pray in generalities. We pray for the solution to the problem, just like Jesus said. And what is that solution? That the Lord of the harvest send forth laborers into His harvest. 
And the way those words come together indicates that worker is to have the characteristic of a shepherd. Someone who loves the sheep and who knows the way of the Lord. Multiply those kind of people and you know what will happen? Someday you will win the whole world. That's the plan. And indeed, it's a way that all of us can follow. But it means accepting by our own choice the role of a servant. This is where we must begin. And this is the foundation upon which the Great Commission lifestyle builds. Some of you have read this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. If not, I hope you will read it. For basically these lectures are built out of this book. And though I don't have time here to give all the scriptural references, I think you'll find as you read the book, there are ample references to the actual word of Christ in this study. Interestingly, though, in this book, there are only eight principles, and I'm going to present nine. Because when I wrote this book, I assumed that the foundation was so obvious, I didn't have to try to elaborate. But I've lived long enough to realize just because something is obvious doesn't mean that it's recognized. For every page of this book is built on the principle of the Incarnation. Until Jesus accepted this role voluntarily, flowing out of His commitment to the cross, until that was accepted, you see, He really wouldn't, wouldn't have been relevant to this world. And that's why I want to begin here, because everything else I say builds upon this foundation. We must become a servant. We must take the servant's mantle. Now that's a decision that we make for ourselves. I can't make it for you. The preacher can't do it. Every person has to face that commitment as a personal response to the life and teaching of Jesus. And it will find expression in the way that we live, in the way that we reach out to serve a hurting world. It will take different forms depending upon the situation. But there will always be ways by which our life can respond to the need of people around us. And that's what brings opportunities to disciple. For when you are known as a servant, you'll never lack opportunity 
to make some disciples. And we should look around and see how people are being attracted to us. It's true of a church. If people don't seem to be interested in what we're preaching, I wonder if it's obvious that the people in the community recognize that we really care about them. Growing churches will have a great compassion for the needs of people. And that not only brings people to hear the gospel, it gives credibility to what you're saying. Of course, it's our responsibility to find the felt needs of people and then seek as best we can to meet them. I am part of a church near where I live that has any number of ministries to reach segments of society that have been overlooked and neglected. We have ministries to youth that are incarcerated in prison, teenagers that are hooked on drugs. We have divorce classes for those that are going through that struggle. We have a medical clinic for those that need that assistance, volunteer nurses and doctors man that clinic through the week. Some people donate their old cars and mechanics in the church will fix them up and then give them away to those in the church who do not have proper transportation. There's so many ways that you can look around you and see that are, there are people that have a need. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And when people see that you care, you have their attention. And seeking people in need is our responsibility. I know of a church in Cincinnati that has gone out and when they have the marathon run, they have people of their church along the route with bottles of water to give the runners when they pass. Some in their church have gone around the community to the filling stations and uh, the stores and ask if they could go and clean their bathrooms. People are shocked, want to know what in the world they're doing. They say, we just come because we love you. And we want to know that we're trying to help. Well, needless to say, that, that congregation has not only got attention, but it has grown to one of the larger churches now in the city. Now, I can't tell you what you're going to do. But there are people around you that need loving, that need to identify that you care. And just as Jesus came into the world as a servant, we must let it known that we really want to serve people. This is a principle of the incarnation woven in our whole ministry. And it must be practiced by each one of us individually. I think you see it in a home as there the members of the family develop a loving desire to help every other member of the family.
That's where it begins. Reaching out to neighbors and friends. People they work beside every day. Become a servant. I remember a movement of revival on the campus at Avery College back in 1970 that really began with a group of young people meeting early in the morning to pray for revival. It was a time of tension in the community. It was also a very perilous time in American history. We were in the Vietnam War. People were rioting in the streets, burning draft cards. But here were some young people that realized the deeper need was to get back to God. I learned after this visitation of the Spirit came, there were about 35 young people led really by a young girl on the campus who covenanted together. They would get up early in the morning to pray for a half an hour and then find someone every day that they could express in a practical way the love of Christ. That had been going on for a long time before we saw a revival. But I'm sure that those prayers reinforced by that servant expression of love prepared the hearts of many people when the Spirit of God fell in power upon that campus. The incarnation. A lifestyle of servanthood which is a commitment that we make ourselves, which is an expression of our decision to take up the cross. This is the way we are to pray, that God, the Lord of the harvest, will raise up workers for His harvest. And those workers are to have the heartbeat of a shepherd who not only identifies with the sheep but is willing to lay his life down for them. And when people see that kind of commitment, when it grips them with a practical reality that you truly love them, then you have attention and they will listen to what you say. This is the first principle. And upon this principle, we will build our life. A life that will find expression, hopefully every day, in a servant 